You're listening to Up to the Mic. If you want to learn about the struggles and triumphs of starting a business, performing for sold-out arenas, or inspiring those you lead, Up to the Mic is the show for you. Throw on some headphones and get ready to listen as our host, Vinny Hale, sits down to showcase the stories of those who deserve their stories be told. From young entrepreneurs to critically acclaimed musicians and so much more, Vinny helps compile a season of interviews that inspire listeners to follow in the footsteps of his guest. All right, John Mark, thanks so much for being on an episode of Up to the Mic today. I really appreciate your time, as well as you inviting us down to the lovely office that you have here in Dallas. So we'll dive into everything that you're up to these days with your business and all things that have gotten you to be in such a lovely office like this. But prior to doing so, as the listeners in the podcast probably know already, I like to start everything by taking it back to the very beginning with the guest and learning a little bit about what got them to where they are today. So I'd like to ask, maybe just open up uh, the discussion with your background, where you're from, what your life like was, life was like growing up, and kind of we'll get into your time at AM and everything else as we evolve through the conversation. Does that sound good? Sounds good. Thanks for having me, Vinny. Um, you know, I grew up uh, in, a, in a town in East Texas called Lufkin. I was born and raised there, moved away at a young age. My dad uh, was in the convenience store business. And so he bought his first convenience store in Huntsville, Texas. And so moved there, uh, grew up working behind the counter, stocking shelves, stocking freezers, and just doing things to help out with the family business. Parents got divorced when I was in kindergarten, so mom and I moved away with my little sister to town on Lake Conroe and called Willis, and uh, lived there for a few years and moved around a little bit more, but ultimately came back and uh, went to last part of middle school and high school in Lufkin, so kind of considered myself still born and raised there. That's early childhood, you know, before before I ended up at A&M. Yeah, I love the story you tell about having worked at a convenience store because I feel like that was definitely my first job, first real job where I had a recurring paycheck there when I was in high school. I remember Market Basket was the store. And so I remember everything from restocking shelves to uh, the freezer. That was one of my favorite things because anytime we'd go into the freezer, if there was something that was like close to the age of expiring, I'd get a free chocolate milk every now and then. And in high school, that was always like the thing we would we would look to find, um, among other things that we'd find in a grocery store that we'd want to take here and there as uh, options came available. But I think it really taught me a lot about, one, holding down a job, two, doing something that you don't necessarily love every day as sort of a way to be a means to an end. I'm curious if you really look back on your time working in a convenience store and growing up in a working class family and think to yourself that maybe it helped you develop some sort of characteristics that might have gotten you to where you are today? Yeah, I think it was awesome. It taught me, you know, the value of hard work and what hard work really was. It allowed me to connect with all kinds of different people from, you know, the guys who own businesses that were coming in to, to grab a Coke on the way to their next meeting to, to the guys who maybe didn't have jobs that were coming in to get a pack of cigarettes for a few bucks that they'd bomb. So interacting with all walks of life was, was really beneficial in that regard. And then, you know, just getting to see entrepreneurship from a young age, that uh, that is something that truly molded me into who I am today. And you know, funny enough, my dad's uh, stores were uh, all outside of Lufkin where I finished high school. But my dad grew up working for uh, a group, a family in Lufkin that they owned convenience stores. And so through high school, I went back to work for them and traveled around and, and did anything from, from painting sidewalks uh, that, that had paint chip off of them to, you know, just uh, filing away files inside the corporate office. So got to see a little bit of it all and, and still stuck around that convenience store environment until I until I thankfully was able to get off to college. Well, it definitely teaches you something about hard work, as you mentioned, 
commitment to something, but you mentioned one thing that I think is probably the most pivotal and biggest little nugget of information, and that's being able to communicate with different people and not only just communicate with them, but relate to them in some sort of way. I think growing up in a small town, I was able to, in much regard, do something similar by way of knowing people that were very successful in life by any stretch of the imagination and also people that maybe were not so much in the eyes of very many. And so being able to not only be around those types of people, but develop some sort of relationship with everybody really opens up a lot of doors in life because as you continue to go throughout your life and your career, you expand from the little small town atmosphere and Lufkin a lot larger than you know the small town I'm referring to of Orange, Texas, but still in the same regard, a little bit of a smaller town when you think of living in Dallas like now. And so the more people you encounter along the road to where you'll eventually end up, I think that that firmly just kind of builds up the characteristics that you need to in turn just make friends and be associated with just about anybody. So it's neat to hear that. Yeah, it makes you very adaptable. And I, I think in the same regard, not only being adaptable, but it allows you to be less judgmental towards others, both in those that are very successful and those that are not at the flip side of the same coin. You know, if there's anything I've learned, it's that you really can't judge somebody at uh, where they are right now versus where they may go. Because I've seen some very, very successful people come out of beginnings that you would not have thought would have led them to where they are. It's crazy because I think that when you look at a lot of the ultra wealthy, and I'm talking, you know, the people that we see as celebrities almost and Elon Musk of the world or whoever the richest in the world, a lot of them come from very humble roots or very, I guess, bootstrap type of roots, meaning that they didn't come from much where they were just had it given to them. Now, there definitely are those cases and I'm not to dismiss them, but I think it you know says something about the people that maybe just wanted a little bit more. Well, yeah, that, that hunger is there when, when you don't have anything starting off. Uh, and, and a lot of times that character that's built in those formative years uh, really just leads to some people who just are, are built to achieve in spite of, of their, their lives growing up. So very fun to watch people go through that and, and succeed, you know, as they develop as people. Absolutely. And, you know, I think we've gotten down a really good rabbit hole here with this conversation talking about characteristics that will help people grow into who they are. And I want to kind of pivot back to talking about you and who you are. Maybe outside of work, which I mentioned earlier, we'll, we'll talk plenty about here in a few moments, but outside of work, what does John Mark like to do? What do you do for fun? What's your family life like? Um, maybe give the people an insight into who you are outside of the business world. Uh, absolutely. So uh, my wife and I uh, have been married for five years. My wife's name is Carly. Uh, she's from the Dallas area, grew up in Highland Village of a flower mound. We have a 16-month-old little boy, and, uh, and every day is a, is a new thing. It's a lot of fun right now. Um, he's starting to kind of find his voice and figure out how, you know, being mobile and getting into things is fun for him and not so much for mom and dad. But uh, but we're really enjoying it. You know, personally, from a hobby standpoint, I'm an outdoors. I always love the outdoors, hunting, fishing, playing golf when it's not hunting season. Being outside is what I love to do, getting fresh air or Dallas air, either one, equally, equally good for me. But uh, yeah, those are the things that I enjoy to do from a hobby standpoint, from a volunteer standpoint i always like to to give a plug to the touchdown club of dallas i'm a member of that i'm on the board i'm also the treasurer uh, and we support the rise school of dallas and uh, we provide the funding so that that school can operate and allow for children who are you know seems developmentally challenged and have some learning disabilities to interact with children who are not in, in a classroom environment in which all are made equal and that's that is a uh, that is a foundation and a cause that's very near dear to my heart my family and I are, are very involved with that with that cause. Yeah, I, I maybe we didn't talk about this much when we had first originally met, and so I'm curious to hear a little bit more about that. How did you get into working with the Touchdown Club, you said? Yeah, Touchdown Club Foundation uh, supports, like I said, the Rise School of Dallas. But um, I had some friends that were in the organization, and I went to a few of the charity events, 
and, and really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed the group of guys and and uh, the foundation is is a group of businessmen here in Dallas that are charged with raising those dollars every single year uh, via the Newman class. Every year, there's 18 Newman uh, that are that are selected and invited into this class. And uh, it's it's been a wonderful opportunity for me to learn about the school, learn about raising funds for something bigger than myself. And uh, it's just it's it's something that has has really intrigued me and, and captured you know a lot of what I'm about. Yeah, I can tell you definitely have a passion for it, and that's really interesting to hear. So, I encourage all the listeners to look into it more. We can drop some information in the show notes related to the Touchdown Club Foundation and everything that it has to offer. And if there's any way people can help, we can definitely throw those links in there for them to go and check it out. You mentioned hunting and fishing and playing golf, just being an outdoorsman in general. In the Texas heat or the Dallas heat more specifically, what is it that you'd like to do in your free time? Because, I, I mean, if it is golf in the 110 degree weather, by all means, you know, more power to you. Uh, but I'm curious if outside of these doors that are work and off the golf course, what do you find your time doing? I guess I can imagine, I'd venture to take a guess that is probably taking care of a 16 month old right now and all that he's getting into. Yeah, that's right. That that is a big uh, source of my time right now, and and I'm very thankful, you know, for the ability to get to parent will. Um, but I think uh, I think outside of that, whether it be early morning or after he goes to bed, I I'm either in the gym or, or going on a ruck. And and it's funny because uh, when my wife and I met, I really had no interest in being in the gym. And as I got more and more into into hunting and and mountain hunting in particular, I really thought that you know I I had to get in shape, and so. I do all of that really to chase my hunting passions, but, you know, being in, in better physical condition as a result of it's kind of cherry on top for me. Where are some of the places that you've gone or that you're hoping to go for some of your more adventurous hunts? Because I'm assuming with all the rucking that you do, there's probably, I'm mean, assuming you're doing pack outs for everything that you kill. So what are some of the places that are kind of on the bucket list or that you've gone to previously? Yeah. So the one that, that really got me going was, uh, was British Columbia last year. We, we had a, uh, 12 day hunt in the mountains. I started training about 14, 15 months in advance, uh, lost about 70 pounds in the process. And, uh, it, it really changed my life just getting ready for that. Um, just as luck would have it, I guess, uh, I guess the hunting gods were smiling down on me, knowing I wasn't in as good a shape as I thought I was. We were able to harvest, uh, a ram, a uh, stone sheep ram on day one, but it led to about an 18 hour pack out. That was the most brutal day of my life. And, uh, thankfully we finished on day one cause I didn't have much left in the tank for days two, three or four after that. That's awesome. I, you know. I have friends who have gone on those large scale hunts like that where you've got to do a pack out, but I've never personally been into any situation where I've had to train for anything like that. I do, however, love running. Running is one of my like biggest passions. It's kind of like my little block of time each day that I keep for myself. And my friends will joke and say that my favorite hobby is golf, but I've it's definitely running. So they give me they give me hell about that one. But I mentioned that to say that I started following a social media influencers, I guess what I'd call him at this point, because of his running, and a guy by the name of Cameron Haynes, but he's well known for his incredible hunts and pack outs that he does, and just the overall just hunter mantra that he goes with. Everything he does is with a bow. He does, yeah, keep hammering. So, he has one of the most popular podcasts, like, in the world, so I don't know if he'll hear this, but he's honestly got two different viewers, one that loves him and one side that hates him. I think some of the hardcore wilderness small town country people i don't know what the, the correct term they might not like the way i phrase it but that there's one group like that that doesn't appreciate what he's doing and advertising it on social media and there's the flip side of the coin where everybody just 
buys in 100%, loves it, and they buy into the, um, like you said, keep hammering mantra, which I kind of like. It's a little motivational. It is. You know, I, I'm actually in the middle of one of his books right now. It's funny. You should bring him up. It's very interesting to hear about a guy who had a passion and then devoted himself physically to being the absolute best that he could be. That's something that really many wouldn't consider a sport. It's just, uh, it's very fascinating to to, to see that there's other like-minded people out there who, who really try to be intentional. And I, I cannot even start to equate myself to anything that he is or has done. But I can certainly relate to, to uh, you know, devoting you know, myself at, at one point in my life, at least, you know, phys- very much physically to get in shape for, for a passion. I think it's crazy. He's uh, dedicated himself and dedicated his fitness to being so great at it, like you mentioned. And I looked it up one time. He's not a very large guy. Not that you have to be, but he's a pretty small guy, especially with all the running. Like, he's very, very thin, and he pulls back like a 90-pound bow or something crazy. Just, I mean, I know there's plenty of people that can do it, but for someone his size to do it so effortlessly, it's always impressed me. But no, his book, I haven't actually read it yet, but I saw a lot of great reviews. It was actually, I... It was actually recommended for me after I read his good friend, David Goggins' book, Can't Hurt Me. That was, David Goggins is another character who's, you know, some people love him and some people hate him. But regardless, you can't deny the fact that he's motivational. Yep. Um, on my reading list as well, it's funny, the guy that gave me Cameron Haynes' book is the same guy that said, listen to David Goggins. It definitely will get you out of bed when you don't want to, and he will be in your ear all day, especially after you read the book. But he is just a different breed. If what he does is legitimate and plenty of people vouch for it and say that it is, he's, I'm ventured to guess to say that he's probably not human. The guy is built differently. Normal people like me need people like him to tell us how bad we are to, to get going. Uh, no, 100%. It, you know, it's funny. Yeah, we're kind of going off on a tangent here, but Cameron Haynes' youngest son, I think his name's Truett. I follow him on social media as well, and he does 2,000 pull-ups a day because he's training to be David Goggins' world record in pull-ups. And it's absolutely, he'll put sponges on his hands so that he doesn't get as many blisters. And the guy's built pretty crazy. He's, it, it's like his back is just pretty much the entire body. It's pretty awesome. Um, people like that just impress me all around because I, you got to be so dedicated to something like that on top of both him and his dad having full-time jobs. That's right. Pretty crazy. Well, anyways, we'll divert from uh, the tangent we just went down with Cameron Haynes and all that that is. I want to talk a little bit about something that is near and dear to both of our arts. That's Texas A&M University. So tell me a little bit about the decision to go to Texas A&M, your time there, what you studied, et cetera. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I always say that I didn't really have a choice or on school. That's not the truth, but I am a third generation Aggie and uh, I grew up going to football games and being on campus. And so I always had a love for A&M. When I was in high school, you know, you started to hear about all these other schools that were out there that I'd never even really considered. So um, I did a trip to Tulane to check out New Orleans, which would have been a terrible place to have gone to school for me but uh i i'm certainly glad that i took the trip down there to experience what new orleans was and uh, and then i also consider vanderbilt uh in nashville uh never made the trip because by the time we decided to go make the trip i'd already been accepted to a&m and uh and i decided that's where i'm gonna go and, and i didn't need to look at anything else decided to go and uh and got there stepped on campus in the fall of 2005 Went in with a general studies major because I didn't have anybody really advising me on what I needed to do. And I didn't know that, you know, signing up for that major may really put me at a disadvantage of getting into some of the other schools. But I started off down that route and uh, and I, I decided when I was school that I was going to be pre-med. And so I started taking all the biologies and chemistries, organic chemistries and all of those things. Uh, 
Yeah, you know, I, I did well in them, and and it just kind of came naturally to me. But then I went and did a, uh, I went and did a summer with an orthopedic surgeon and watched some surgery, and, and decided really quickly that that was probably not the path for me. Because even though I, I have a stomach to do the things in the outdoors, I, I didn't really have a stomach to deal with the the human aspect of surgery. Uh, so I, I quickly came back that next that next fall, of my junior year, having taken all of these basic pre medical requirements, and said, "I'm going to transfer the, to the business school." And so I transferred into the business school. I'm still with really no direction of what I wanted to do. I just knew that you know, hey, I grew up in a family full of entrepreneurs. Figure this out in business school. One professor approached me in an accounting class and said, "Hey, you should really consider PPA program at A um, and again, this is just all kind of seems like dumb luck how it happened because I didn't really know what I was going to do or what I wanted to do with it. So I said, sure. And I applied and I got in and, uh, and proceeded to, to go through that five-year accounting and uh, finance program at A&M, did my bachelor's in accounting, master's in finance, uh, got an internship with PwC uh, in the spring of my senior year, had a great time working in Houston with the folks there and, uh, and went back to school finished up and uh, went, went to work for PwC out of school. So in my time at A&M, uh, I was a member of Delta Tau Delta fraternity, uh, had, a, had a great time, uh, held some leadership positions there, uh, enjoyed all the Aggie football and baseball that I could take in, and uh, and always made a lot of time to sneak away by myself on the weekends to go get, get a little hunting in wherever I could. That's awesome. I'd love to hear the story. And even though we've talked about it before, I relate a lot to it, obviously, given the fact that we were both part of the PPA program or PPA and all that you've come to grow and build with your own business is inspiring to see. I uh, Before we leave the Aggie football and Aggie baseball discussion, I'm, I am curious what your expectations are for the upcoming year, because I know we've got a lot of high hopes, as we do every year, um, this year especially with the onset of the new offensive coordinator. And so I'm curious if you have any way too early season predictions, or I guess Maybe not way too early because we're coming up on it about 10, 12 days away from Aggie football. So, right. Well, you know, I think Vegas has the, the win total set a little too low, but I think every Aggie in the world has also bet on that. And that's why it's uh, the odds are not as favorable to, to, to pick the side that we would like to pick. Yeah. I'm cautiously optimistic. I used to go back for all the games and, uh, and not that I don't love Aggie football, but I like watching it on TV. And, and doing it from from hunting camp a little more than I do, you know, missing the whole weekend and not being able to experience the outdoors uh, in the way that I enjoy it on the weekends. But I, I think we're going to have a good season. I think we've got, uh, you know, we're probably going to have an elite offense. We'll see We'll see if they can stay on the field long enough to, to get that defensive rest. That's the goal, right? we got to score some points this year. So we'll see how it all shakes out. I'm hopeful that, like you said, I'll remain cautiously optimistic. Sometimes I'm a little bit of a dreamer. I'll be ready to buy some SEC championship tickets in the event that anything crazy happens. But in the event that it doesn't, in the meantime, we'll just hold steady with trying to get more wins than we did last year, and we'll be happy with what we can get. But uh, I appreciate that insider or that take on Aggie football. I do want to now talk about your career journey. So you briefly mentioned it about how you went to work for Big Four right out of college. After your initial time there, Talk about kind of a few career transitions you made and then how you finally ended up in the position you are. Maybe some deciding moments that happened during that time frame. Yeah. So when I left PwC, I'd only been there for probably a little less than a year and a half. Uh, and mentally, I knew that I had to get my license signed off on and it was a good start. But, you know, I, 
I probably originally intended to stay longer than I did. There were just some life circumstances that that made me look elsewhere. And so when I did look elsewhere, I was approached by another gentleman who's also an Aggie grad. And he was in the process of transitioning an accounting department for a private equity fund here in town for, for a company that that private equity fund had bought uh, from New Jersey to Dallas. And that sounded intriguing to me. So I signed up and, and I left PwC and I, and I went and joined what is now known as Caliber Home Loans. Uh, but prior to that, it was, a, it was a little company called Veracrest Financial. And so went through that transition. Once that transition was done from moving that accounting department, it was more of a, hey, you're going to settle into to a staff accountant job. And, and that's great. You know, that some people really enjoyed doing, you know, the day-to-day work in corporate accounting. But that just wasn't me. I had that entrepreneurial itch. Uh, and so what I decided to do was at the at the very young age of 25 was to start a practice cold turkey with no clients. Um, I was afforded the ability to do that by a gentleman who, who believed in me. He was a financial advisor, still is. And he had me come in and, and help work with some of his clients. And that gave me a little bit of a start. And, uh, and, and I was able to then, you know, take that opportunity that he gave me and, and continue building the rest of my practice from there. I did that in uh, 2012, uh, start, started in class 2012, went full-time 2013. And uh, so we're, we're over 10 years full-time now. I'm moving into, I guess, our fourth office. We've grown out of a few of them. And and hope to continue growing out of them, but um, that's that's it's been a fun little ride for us so far. Maybe talk a little bit about the structure of an accounting firm for those who are listening that might not understand the typical practice structure, as well as some of the different avenues that you have to pull whenever you're an accounting firm, meaning solely performing taxes at your end versus any other services that you might offer uh, for those that might not be as well-versed in the accounting world. Yeah, so it's it's interesting that you would ask that because if you're asking a guy who has a non-traditional accounting practice to explain how a traditional accounting practice works, and being that I didn't really, what I like to say, grow up in public accounting, I grew up in a, I, what I did was I decided to start working in public accounting my way and, and on my terms, right, wrong, or indifferent is where we are. And uh, so our practice is a little different, but you know, our, the way our practice operates is, is not on the traditional hourly uh, billing model. We, we operate in a manner in which we operate, we, we operate in a manner in which we provide a flat fee service to our clients. Uh, and, and that can be scoped out to include tax return preparation, consulting, uh, outsourced CFO services, outsourced accounting services. And, uh, and what, what we'd like to say and equate that to is we are, we're essentially able to be an outsourced family office for families who may not need a full-blown office. Um, and so when you think about a family office, traditionally you're thinking about people like the Bushes, the Perros, the Cubans. Well, there's a, there's a contingent of the people out there who are business owners or very successful businesses who need those types of services, but just probably more on a fractional basis than on a full-time basis for the full staff. And so we're able to offer that to them and, and the services that we can provide, provide our clients to give them a little more of a hands-on, you know, more personal touch. Uh, you can equate it to concierge physician practice uh, in the accounting world. Is what When you think about the clientele that you have, is there anybody that essentially you would turn away as not being the, the right fit for your firm? Because I, the reason I ask this question is because I've seen a lot of news going around when you look into 
you know, starting a public practice, not public, but starting a practice in general for accounting. Okay, what are the different avenues like you just mentioned? In the old days, the traditional motto would be filing tax returns, filing season for the year. Other than that, you're not as busy throughout the year, but now it's evolved into this kind of everything model where you're a full-time consultant and manager and whatever it may be. Now, part of that model that I've seen a lot of people start to go towards is, okay, as opposed to just taking on every piece of business I can, I'm going to trim the fat, to use an expression, and instead of having 100 clients where 75% of them take up 90% of my time, I'm going to have you know 25% of the clients that I don't have to dedicate quite as much time to, but I can dedicate even more to them now and get even more out of them in the long run. Do you approach your business in any similar manner? Yeah, we do. It's uh, So what we do is we look for clients who really have a tax planning need and want tax strategy. Anybody who comes to us and says, hey, I need a tax return filed. Here's what I paid last year. Those are typically clients that aren't going to work for us. And the reason for that is because we are not just a tax compliance shop. Yes, we file tax returns for our clients, but it really comes as a byproduct of the other services that we're able to provide and, and the advice that we're able to give them over the course of the year, whether it be tax related, estate planning related, you know, more financial analysis related. Uh, it can it can be just a, a wide variety of advice that our clients will come to us for. And that that's the service that we're looking to sell first. And that if, if a client is not wanting to buy that advisory type of service, that is not going to be a client fit that, that we're looking for. When we think about the different services that you provide and given the size of your team now, talk to me a little bit about a really loaded question, but talk to me about a day in the life for John Mark. So I know today you're in the office. I don't know if you're in the office every day, um, if there's a couple days a week thing. Um, if so, what does the typical day look like for you? What are you doing? Are you on the phone? Are you in meetings? Are you in the weeds with the analysis work? Talk to me about a day in the life. Yeah, so my, my life uh, at the office has really changed a lot over the past 24 months. Um, I used to be in the weeds a lot more than I am now, but as as the firm has grown and as the team has grown and and, and as the business has evolved into what it is now, I, I, I operate a lot more in the managing partner capacity in which I'm really running the firm and I'm helping develop our people and train our people and, and work with clients on really hard decisions, really, really hard solves that need to be done. Um, and so I find myself more in, in meetings all day long doing, whether it be internal or external, and just trying to add value to whatever it is that that person that has, has requested my time, uh, being able to add value to what it is that they can do and, and help and direct our team to execute that. I do a lot of business development. So I do a lot of business uh, sales for the firm, essentially. And uh, I educate people on what we do and, and who we're a good fit for from a, from a client and firm perspective. And, uh, and that's just, that's, that's what a majority of my day looks like. I also do a little bit of travel. To, to go see clients, go to client sites. Uh, this week, I'll be in Midland for a couple of days to go see some folks out there. And we've got some clients up in Ohio that I go see on a pretty regular basis. And uh, just, you know, if, if a client needs needs me for something, then I, I try to accommodate and come see them. Well, talk to me a little bit more about the business development aspect of it. I'm curious more so at the beginning of firm creation. So when you look about or when you think about starting a practice, starting a firm, you want to do what you were saying a moment ago, and you want to spend time working on the business, although you might find yourself more so often than not working for the business or in the business. I forget the exact you know phrase that's out there thrown around, but I'm curious, when you're starting out, what is it that you could really do to start getting those initial clients? I know you said that you had the you know a little bit of help in being able to work with some of your, I guess I'll call them mentors, financial advising clients, but 
aside from that, going out to market yourself while you're uh, trying to do the work itself, how would someone navigate that road if they were to start themselves? Yeah, I can have, I have vivid memories of starting out. I remember sitting in my office and thinking one day somebody's going to email me with something they need. And I'm going to be so excited for the day that I need it and have all these emails. Well, that day's here. And let me tell you, emails are for the birds, but it's a necessary evil. And the similar thought was one day my phone's going to ring. And, and our phone rings now and, it, and it's great. In order to start generating that, I did all of the things that most people don't really want to do. I went to networking events, chamber of commerce events, anything and everything that I could do to put myself in, in front of other business owners and really started off, you know, taking, taking work that maybe not be a fit for us any longer, but that's because I had to start somewhere. I needed to be able to develop relationships and develop my skills as a professional and working with others. Um, and I was able to do that uh, pretty rapidly to the point in which we were able to start getting more business from referrals and it lessened the need for me to get out of the office much. Um, now, I really enjoy being out of the office and being in front of people and, and having conversations and doing some of that networking. So I still make time for, for those things. But, uh, but that was, you know, when I first started the practice, that was every single day thing was finding an event to go to finding a way to get in front of people and finding finding a way just to tell my story about what I thought that I could bring to someone else and, and give them that maybe their previous provider was not. Now, I think that's great advice as many of the people that probably listen to the podcast are potentially young adults looking to pursue some sort of entrepreneurial venture of their own. With that in mind, when I think about the decision point that has to go through someone's mind at such a young age of 25, 26, to then go out and create their own firm, now, I'm sure that initially, and correct me if I'm wrong, that after one year of public accounting or two years of accounting work in general, you might not have had all of the expertise necessary to, to begin. How do you navigate something like that and, and come to get past the point of imposter syndrome for many people? Of, I don't think I can do it. I'm not senior enough now. I don't know enough now to leave and do whatever it is that I want to do and pursue whatever entrepreneurial venture it is, accounting or otherwise. How do you kind of fight that a little bit and overcome that? Yeah, I want to start with saying that 10, 11 years later, there's still times when I encounter things, I'm like, I don't know if I am equipped to handle this. But what I, what I chose to do was to make myself a student and try to become a master of the skill that I was going to sell clients. And, uh, and that involved a lot of research, a lot of Googling, a lot of corroborating the data that I found and starting to really self-learn and, and then bounce those things that I discovered off of mentors who were still in the field who were, you know, at higher levels. Um, I had an aunt and uncle uh, or still have an aunt and uncle. They've since sold their firm, but they were down. They had a firm south of Houston and Friendswood. And when I was encountering a scenario, which I didn't know, I would just reach out and ask for help and say, how would you navigate this? Is, am I on the right thought track? But a lot of that was driven by self-study and, and not wanting to be put in a position in which I was, I was caught flat-footed with a clock. Um, and so I really just immersed myself in what it was. Uh, and, I, and I had to, in order to be able to speak and really sell the concepts that, that we went after, which started off simple and have gotten more complex over time. I think that's great advice because self-learning is one piece of it that can help you overcome a lot of that imposter syndrome, becoming more comfortable. I, uh, I'm a big quote guy. People have heard me say it a hundred times, but there's a very famous one. I don't even know who said it. I just know it's thrown around all the time, but um, success is where preparation and opportunity meet. 
So the opportunity could be there. That's the sales, the business development side of it that we spoke to earlier. Now, the flip side of that is what we're speaking to now in the actual pursuit of doing the work, the self-learning, upskilling yourself, preparing yourself to then be ready when that opportunity comes, then you can succeed. I know that sounds very motivational for you out there that are listening to this, but in the same breath, it is very motivational. And that's something that people need to hear because I think myself, I go through this a lot of times, whether it be just in my daily life, whether it be with the podcast, whether it be with my you know professional job, whatever I'm doing, there's always something that I don't know how to do. There's always something that someone's better than me at. Being able to step out a little bit and just kind of make the jump and figure it out as you go has been something that served me very well. I have some good friends of mine, uh, just people that I've come across during my life that their first instinct is, their first instinct when they don't know how to do something is run to someone who they think does. And I think sometimes it helps to sit and struggle with it for just a minute and just see if there's a way to think through it yourself. Now, a lot of times I don't know the answer when I do this little exercise. I'll sit and think through it and I'll be 30 minutes down this rabbit hole and not figure out what I'm trying to figure out. And then I'm like, okay, well, I just wasted 30 minutes. Let me not waste 30 more and just go ask somebody. But I learn more that way. At least I have questions when I do go to ask that person. I'm not necessarily just going with, hey, this problem came up. Can you solve it? I'm going with, hey, this problem came up. I tried this, this, and this. I, I don't know where to go from here. And then it isn't the conversation typically goes all easy. Yeah, that's right. And I think that people are always going to be more willing to give you advice when you've shown a little bit of effort in trying to do it on on your own the first time. But yeah, it's 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 really just figuring things out because somebody had to figure it out the first time. So all of us are capable of doing and learning and figuring. Um, it's, it just comes with the desire and, and really the motivation to do so. And I guess, you know, I was, I was young and dumb and, and just eager. And so I chose to do it. Uh, you, you asked a question about, you know, making that initial jump. Um, you know, to be honest, I, I told myself there would probably never be a better time than now, even though many disagree with me and said, you're not here to do this. This will never work. I've told myself that if I allow myself to stay somewhere and continue earning more and more and more, then I will never give myself the opportunity to make this jump. And so doing it while I was probably at the one of the lowest points of my life from a salary standpoint that I'd ever be was really the opportune time for me to do so. And I think that's an interesting viewpoint to put on it because there's really two lenses to it. The one that I spoke to earlier where I say, you know, you want to be more senior before you make the jump. You want to have more experience. You want to have learned more. But then at the same time with each year that you stay in whatever corporate job it is that you that you work in, there's probably going to be a salary bump that comes with it. There's probably going to be more responsibility that comes with it. There's going to be more perks that keep you from leaving, namely the salary. Like you said, it's uh, an interesting way to think about it. And I think I'd encourage everyone out there who might be thinking about pursuing that entrepreneurial spirit. If you can't do it as a side hustle, try and figure out a way to do it and just make the jump. And uh, as John Mark can attest to, hopefully it will pay off to be fruitful in the long run. <laughs> yeah, it may not have been the, the most reasonable thing to do. But uh, but that's the way it happened, and and we've been very blessed and worked out yeah. to this point. You know, we can cut this if you don't want to offer any, but give the uh, listeners one free piece of advice. What is something that people commonly misconstrue about, about taxes, about personal finance and personal taxes? What is something that people mess up on? The one I see the most is, when, when will I get my tax return? And, uh, and it's actually a tax refund. So the next time you talk to your CPA... Say tax refund, you'll sound a little more educated. But uh, no, I, I would say, you know, in, in all seriousness, 
uh, people think about tax as a bunch of boring people who are shoved back in cubicles and 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 that may be true for some places and some firms, but there's a lot of really lively, personable, relatable tax people out there. And those are really, really neat professionals to interact with, um, not only from the client side, but from professional side as well. And you can really find yourself, you know, engaged in, in a really educational conversation with somebody who who is an expert in the tax field, but also has some personality to go along with that expertise. And that almost makes it that much better to work with them, right? Because when you've got the personality to go along with the technical skill set, I said this on another episode uh, when someone brought up a similar viewpoint, you know, not just being able to know something and know it very well that you can perform a task or an action for someone, but being able to take it, digest it or explain it in a digestible way for someone else. That's where all the value is. Being able to have someone that knows nothing about all of the money they make and the taxes they owe or pay or whatever it is, well, not just doing the tax work for them, but explaining it to them, making it work for them, being a trusted advisor. There's a really, really good video. I can't remember the name of it, so I can probably link it in the show notes afterwards. But essentially, it's a, a famous investment banker or consultant or something along those lines. And he was basically talking about the benefits and of client service and saying, to be a good client service practitioner, essentially what you'll need to do is make yourself the trusted advisor in whatever it is that that person needs. So he said, you know, I work as an investment banker. Well, my clients don't just need me to do whatever it is, whatever type of finance or investment banking work they need me to do. My clients call me when they come to town and need a place to take their kids to get a haircut or where they want to go to eat to take one of their family friends out or whatever. It's like, I am the go-to person in their life when they need something. And he goes, that's because I built up that relationship of being a trusted advisor. So it's exactly your point. If you were just some tax person in a cubicle as the typical you know, stereotype is, maybe that wouldn't be the case. Whereas if you build yourself into someone who is more relatable and more willing to provide that excellent level of client service, well, at that point, you can start to be that trusted advisor for people. Yeah, it's, it's that relationship. It's that ability to connect. And it's that ability to make somebody understand, you know, the concept and the why behind what you're advising um, that, that takes that trust to another level. Well, talk to me. I know we've spent a lot of time here discussing your business, and that's honestly where the huge portion of the content I want to talk about today was. But I, I do want to know, aside from the here and the now and the past that we covered, what's next? Where are we headed? Yeah, that's interesting. We uh, we just moved in some new office space that... Uh, it says that we have to grow. We came from about 3,500 square feet uh, when we left in June, and we've moved into about 12,500 12, square feet now. And so what's next is is finding a way to serve clients on a better scale with better service than, than anyone else in the market can provide. That's how we're going to hope to grow. You know, we're a small firm, so we're not really well known, and there's a lot of really awesome small firms out there. But we hope to really be able to build a name for ourselves and our professionals and something that they're proud of and be able to serve the market and the contingent of clients that are good fits for us in a way that other firms have been unable to due to, due to you know, being too large and having the inability to pivot and, and become creative and work for different ways to do things or by just being small, being content. You know, we're not there. We uh, we want to keep growing, keep adding adding really awesome professionals here who are relatable, which again, that's not always the easiest thing to find in tax or, or financial advisory or in, in something of the sort, but that's something that we're, we're committed to doing. Uh, some of our, our other goals are we've, we've been on the Aggie 100 twice. And for anybody who is familiar with, with that, it's, 
it's a really cool event. It honors the 100 fastest growing Aggie-owned businesses in the world. We've been we've been on that list twice. Honestly, we got to a point where I was we were we were growing at a point in which I felt we needed to take a step back and work on some internal operations. So we've been in, in the throes of that for for probably about two years now. But uh, thing things have gotten to a place where we're ready to take that next step again. And I think that's just something that happens in business. Business. I see it in clients' businesses all the time. They're growing, 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 and then something breaks. You got to take a step back and, and figure out what that fix is. Uh, so I think that's been interesting for us too because we've experienced that here. We've not only been able to give our clients advice from a tax perspective, but we've been able to identify some of those operational things. Say, hey, you know, I kind of our conversations that we're having. You're you're taking me down a road, and, and it's somewhere that I've been, and I want to. I want to help you in that arena too and, and understand that it's okay to slow down for a second, regroup, rebuild, you know, get that foundation better, better secured under your feet and keep going. Just hoping to grow and maybe get back on that AU 100 list one day. That would be another incredible feat as you've already done it twice. So congratulations. I appreciate you bringing that up. I forgot to mention it. And so that's a really awesome accomplishment and something that when you think about the large spectrum of Aggies that graduate every year and all of them that are out in the world, the top 100 growing Aggie-owned companies is a pretty short list. And so appreciate you sharing that with us. That was a pretty awesome accomplishment. So I will definitely offer any resources or links that you'd like to share with the audience. But in the meantime, is there anything that you'd want to say, I guess, as far as people that might be in need of services similar to what your your firm offers um, while we're here on the podcast, just an opportunity to share? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not huge on like selling, selling a public audience on anything, but you know, I, I like to think we're pretty good at what we do. We offer that personal touch to tax, uh, to, to state planning and to outsource the accounting and CFO services that, uh, other firms do. But I don't think, you know, hopefully I don't, I think we do better. We just got that, that touch that, that goes a long ways with our clients and that trust. And, uh, it's, it's just. It's something we're passionate about here and something that we love to do and love to continue seeing our clients grow uh, and in turn see our folks here grow. Well, I really appreciate it. Maybe the last question I'll ask here is, aside from the business aspect of everything, what's next for you personally? What are what are upcoming goals or things that you're striving to accomplish in life? Is there another big hunt you're looking forward to, another child in the future, another big vacation, just slowing down a little? What is it that you see yourself doing in either the near or the distant future? Yeah, from a personal perspective, my wife reminds me almost daily that that we need to have a sibling for my son Will. So you know that's that's typically top of mind, and I'm I'm sure that you know the Lord will bless us with that one day. And when that day comes, then then we'll be very thankful for that lack of sleep that will that will be coming out on the horizon. You know, hunting is always is always out there on the horizon for me. This year, I've got a uh, I've gone to Sonora, Mexico, on a desert sheep hunt. Uh, so another another mountain hunt, and uh, in and my goal would one day to be able to harvest, at least hunt, uh, also in North America and kind of keep that physical fitness out in the forefront while trying to accomplish those uh, dreams. That's awesome. Well, I wish you the best of luck in all things personal and professional. And I can't thank you enough for inviting me down to the office. I'll try and get a quick clip here of the office and the view that we've got, but beautiful new building uh, that I'm sure you will grow into here very shortly. But again, appreciate the time and thanks so much for inviting us out. Thanks for having me, Vinny. Really appreciate it. Let's go. Yeah. I'm like an addict. Ooh, I gotta have it. I ain't even playing. Got a really bad habit. If it moves, gotta grab it. Fuse like a magnet. Lose, won't have it till I'm doomed in a